Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. All right, let's jump right in here. We're on week four in our fortune cookie series. We're looking at scriptures that people take out of context or misuse. And what happens is, is they wind up misapplying them in incorrect ways. And um, they develop a theology that is no good. Your Kung Fu is no good. Remember all that? You know, and if we, if we fortune cookie the Bible, our theology, our understanding and our study of God is no good. And so we're going to go through a couple more here this week. So number one in your notes, we're going to jump right in. God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who help themselves. I'm going to stay, only say one statement about this. It is, this should be an actual fortune cookie statement because it's not in the Bible. If you've ever heard that, that it is in the Bible, it is not in there. Neither is cleanliness is next to godliness, which my mom pulled out a couple times, I think, and made me clean my room with. And so now, all these years later, I was like, oh, she got me. But neither one of those, cleanliness is next to godliness, and God helps those who help themselves are not scripture verses even though they're kind of in those little bite-sized statements. So anyway, number two, there's a little fun one there for you, at least for me. Um, number two, where there is no vision, where there is no vision. <clears throat> now, if you've been in church for any length of time, you can probably finish this statement for me. So let's see how it goes. Where there is no vision, the people perish. There we go, yeah. And that comes out of Proverbs 29, 18. That is the actual scripture. I put it here in the King James Version because this is the only version that phrases this sentence in this way. Where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. So this scripture is, uh, next line in your notes, this scripture is often fortune cookied in church settings by explaining that the lead pastor has the quote unquote vision of what the local congregation should do, and the people in the congregation are the workers and financial investors to make that vision come to pass. <clears throat> this is incorrect. That is not the definition of the church. It's not the definition of shepherd or sheep. That's not the definition of how this goes, nor is it an interpretation of this passage. So let's dig into it a little bit here. We have to be very careful that we don't take modern definitions for words and apply them to words that were used hundreds of years ago. The, the King James Version was finalized in 1611. Uh, yes, 1611, so more than 400 years ago. And so this word vision in that time frame had a different implication or definition than it does today. Now today in our corporate America business-oriented um, uh, idea of vision. Vision is a measurable set of goals that can give clarity on a project to, uh, to everyone that's involved in it so it can accomplish a task. That's what the vision is. And so if you're understanding, if we're interpreting the word vision in our new, you know, kind of our new more modern definition as opposed to how it was written, then we start to create this thing of like, oh, well, where there's nobody that's got a plan for the church, like the pastor, no one's following his quote unquote vision, then people are going to perish. They're going to fall off by the wayside. This word vision does not mean 
that measurable set of goals that people rally behind to accomplish a task. This word vision is different. In the, uh, I put the John Gill exposition of the whole Bible commentary quote in this um, particular, uh, in, in your notes, because I believe it kind of explains and summarizes uh, what this word vision really means, okay? So where there is no vision, the people perish. That is no prophecy. That word prophecy is the word vision. In the New Testament, prophesying is often put for preaching. And here, quote-unquote vision or prophecy signifies the public ministering of the word and ordinances and want of persons to administer them. Next note, another definition of the original word vision is divine revelation. Divine revelation. Next line, another definition for the word perish is to show lack of restraint. Now, the reason I'm finding these two words is because in this scripture, there is vision of perish. These are the two key words that are in this verse in this statement. Vision and perish. Well, we just, we just read in John Gill's uh, commentary that this word vision, and we see another definition of the word vision is prophecy, ministering the word of God in public, and divine revelation. Those are all in the same vein. This word perish means the lack of restraint. So in the verses that are before this one in Proverbs 29, and the verses that are in this one, um, Solomon uses a comparison of parents giving instructions to their children. Okay? So follow me with this one. Proverbs 29, verses 15 through 18. The rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. When the wicked are multiplied, transgression increases, but the righteous will see their fall. Correct your son, and he will give you rest. Yes, he will give delight to your soul. Where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint, but happy is he who keeps the law. So what Solomon is doing here is he is drawing a comparison between if you are not giving instruction to your children, they are going to run wild and crazy with no guidelines, with no standards, with no, um, with no idea of how they should be acting. Give instruction, people will follow. Do not give the instruction, people are going to run crazy. This is the comparison he's giving us here when it talks about vision and people perishing. He's saying where there is no ministering of the word of God, people are going to run wild, they're going to cast off restraint, and they're going to live a life basically that's hedonistic, self-focused, and where does that end? In death. Where there is no public ministering of the word or, ha or there's no people who want to minister the word publicly, the people are going to run crazy. This was not written to us. We talk about that a lot in this series, right? It wasn't written to us, but it was written for anyone who wants to understand wisdom. I started thinking about this. Why in the world would Solomon 
choose to write this particular thing? Why would he draw this comparison between parents letting their kids run out and do whatever they want and they just, you know, no correction and the kids run wild? Why does he make this comparison and then bring a comparison of saying, hey, if no one's teaching the word, people are going to run wild? And then I found it. He lived through it. First Kings chapter one, verse five and six. David, who is Solomon's father, about that time, David's son, Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, began boasting, I will make myself king. So he provided himself with chariots and charioteers and recruited 50 men to run in front of him. His father, King David, had never disciplined him at any time, even by asking, why are you doing that? Adonijah had been born next after Absalom, and he was very handsome. So Adonijah was born right before Solomon, and Solomon watched his brother, Adonijah, be left to his own devices. King David, the mighty King David, did not discipline his own son ever once and tell him, why are you doing that? Make sure you share the toy when they go, mine. When the kids go, mine, share your toy. Don't hit your brother. Don't smack your sister. Don't put gum in her hair. All those things that we tell our kids not to do. David never once gave any instruction to his own son, Adonijah. And Solomon watched what happened in their life. So he writes this as a general wisdom principle for anyone anyone to learn from. He wrote these in the mid-900 BC, around 950 BC, and these principles are still applicable and true today. 200 years later, we see just how applicable this scripture still is. So he wrote it in around 950 BC, about 750 BC. Um, Israel is doing what Israel does. They're rejecting God. They're living however they want to live. They're turning their back on God and they're chasing all these idols and these, these, these false ways of living, the pagan ways of living. And the Lord sends a prophet Hosea to tell them something very specific. Hosea chapter four, verses one through six. Hear the word of the Lord, O people of Israel. The Lord has brought charges against you, saying there is no faithfulness, no kindness, no knowledge of God in your land. You make vows and break them. You kill and steal and commit adultery. There is violence every, everywhere, one murder after another. That is why your land is mourning and everyone is wasting away. Even the wild animals, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea are disappearing. Don't point your finger at someone else and try to pass the blame. Now, Listen to who he's frustrated with. My complaint, you priests, is with you. So you will stumble in broad daylight, and your false prophets will fall with you in the night, and I will destroy Israel, your mother. My people are being destroyed because they don't know me. Since your priests refuse to know me, I refuse to recognize you as my priest. And since you have forgotten the laws of your God, I will forget to bless your children. Who is he talking about here? The priests, the ones who are supposed to be bringing forward the word of God and teaching it to the people of Israel. And they're not doing it. They are not publicly ministering the word. They're not bringing the word of God to the people. And what happens? 
They're unfaithful. They're unkind. They have no knowledge of God. They break their vows. They kill. They steal. They commit adultery. And there's violence everywhere. That is a living example of where there is no vision, no divine revelation, no people presenting the word of God. People cast off restraint. They run wild. They do whatever it is they want to do. They just find ways to please themselves, and that ends in destruction. 200 years after this is written, it is still applicable to the children of Israel because the priests aren't preaching the word, and the people who don't know the word are living however they want to and worshiping false gods. Where there is no divine revelation, people cast off restraint. This same principle just doesn't last 200 years. It lasts almost a thousand years to about 40 or 50 years after Christ is, is, is born. And the same principle we find in the New Testament, Romans 10, 13 through 14. This is Paul talking to the believers in Christ in Rome. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him and how can they hear about him unless someone tells them if no one's going to share the word of God, the truth of the gospel, how are the people supposed to know how to live? How are they supposed to know how to be saved? How are they supposed to know the guidelines for life? If there's no one bringing the word, there's no way they can understand how to live where there is no vision, where there is no divine revelation, where there is no one presenting the word of God. The people are going to do whatever they want, however they, however they want, and they're going to find ways to satisfy their flesh above everything else. Matt, are you trying to tell me that having a quote-unquote vision is wrong? No. There are leadership principles all over Proverbs that point to looking ahead, making a plan for what you see that's coming ahead, rallying people, treating them with, with uh, treating them right, treating them with care. There's all types of leadership principles. What I'm saying is this verse has nothing to do with that. It actually has to do with something far more important. If we are not bringing the word of God to anyone that's in our sphere of influence, how in the world are they ever going to know what's right and wrong? If we don't stand there and say, hey, you're doing X, Y, or Z, this is wrong. And be willing to accept the, the, the repercussions of telling somebody the truth. And this is the only way to get to heaven. These actions are not acceptable if you're going to say, I'm a believer in Christ and follow him. You can't keep doing this. I'm not telling you because I hate you. I'm telling you because I love you. Because if there is no vision, there is no public ministering of the word, people are going to perish. Because how can they know unless we tell them? This scripture does weigh heavy for us. It has nothing to do with the building fund or whatever other the task might be. I'm not saying those things are wrong. This scripture is far more de deep than that. This scripture specifically deals with us telling the truth and the word of God to the culture. 
and to our children and to our family and to our friends so they can understand the right way to live. Where there is no vision, the people perish. And that is just as true today as it was almost 3,000 years ago when Solomon wrote it. Next one, number three. <clears throat> I can do all things. I can do all things. <clears throat> this is typically where people stop this passage. And um, if you remember a couple of months ago when we were in our, our series on Philippians, we kind of addressed this a, a little bit. But the reason I'm bringing this back and hitting it again is because this is one of the most abused scriptures in all of the Bible. I almost bought a t-shirt and wore it today that said, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. <laughs> and then I thought, that'd be kind of snarky. It'd have been funny for me, but might have been kind of snarky for everybody else. But you can buy them online, coffee cups, mugs, sweaters. They're all over the place. It's awesome. <clears throat> but the passage is Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Next line in your notes. This scripture is most often fortune cookied online as a motivational statement. As a motivational statement. Matt, are you saying that you shouldn't motivate people? I shouldn't motivate people. I shouldn't tell them about all the good things that God is doing for them. No. I'm saying we shouldn't take this scripture and do that. Here's why. The danger of uh, misapplying this scripture is it leads to an idea that's prevalent in our culture, in our churches, in believers today, that if I believe in Jesus, I can do anything. That's what people think. That is not what this passage says. If that were the truth, I want to challenge anyone who believes that right now to stand up and flap your arms and fly home. Rashad? Anything? No? He's like, oh, he just, oh, he was just adjusting on the chair. I thought he was going to try it real quick. Nobody? Why? It's ridiculous, right? Well, Matt, come on. This, I, no one thinks that. Well, it says all things. I can do all things. Well, it's not stupid little things like that, Matt. It's, it's things that I can do with my life that I can do for God. Okay. Um, can I be disobedient? slap God's name on a disobedient action and be like, yeah, he signed off on it because I can do all things through Christ and go out there and do something that he did not tell me to do? Can I follow a path that is um, anti-scripture? Well, I can do all things. Well, no, Matt, you're taking it too far. Right, that's where this idea leads. It leads to an end that we can just create and make up whatever we want. It's not open-ended for us. Our culture, next line of your notes, promotes selfishness and influences us to see the first and last words in this passage. I and me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The truth of the matter is I probably should have put four words there instead of just I and me. It should have been I, all things, and me. I all things, me all things, yes, all things to me. That's what I would, I would like, all things to me. But that's not how this is presented. 
when we fall into this trap of, I can do everything, it's typically because people um, might, might be hesitant to take a, a chance on quitting their job and starting a new business endeavor or, or trying to find a different job or move to a different city or do something that has a little bit of risk involved in it. And people are like, don't be afraid, man. Just take a step. Just go out there. You can do all things through Christ. You can do all things. Just go do it. Just go. Just go. And it's like, a, like I'm trying to give you a nudge. I'm trying to tell you, you can go do it. You go do it. And it leads to something that I was dumbfounded that I found just how much this I found during my study this week. It leads to a belief that says, you need to believe in yourself the way God believes in you. I was stunned because I've been reading the Bible quite a long time. Heard a million and one sermons in my life. I've never run across that passage where God believes in me. His faith is in me. And I went online and I found sermon after sermon, blog post after blog post, podcast after podcast. I even found somebody who wrote notes on this and put them out online for anyone who wanted to preach the message that he found the notes for. Using this as one of those passages. Um, God knows what you're capable of. God knows what you're capable of. <clears throat> he knows all your public sin that everybody else knows, and he knows all the private sin. He knows the flaws, what you do behind closed doors in the middle of the night, your online search history, who you flirt with at work, the impulses that exist in your heart, the temptations that you won't put to death. He knows exactly how much jacked up stuff we're capable of. He knows every bit of it. Why? Because we were born as descendants of people who sinned. We are born into that sin. My friend, God knows exactly what we're capable of. Matt, you're being kind of negative. Jeremiah 17, 5 through 10. This is what the Lord says. Cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans and who rely on human strength and turn their hearts away from the Lord. I don't think God cursed himself. I don't think he is relying on human strength to come through. Why? They are like stunted shrubs in the desert with no hope for the future. They will live in the barren wilderness and in an uninhabited salty land. But blessed are those who trust in the pastor, no, Lord, who have made the Lord their hope and confidence. They are like trees planted along a riverbank with roots that reach deep into water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat or worried by long months of drought. Their leaves stay green. They never stop producing fruit. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due reward according to what they deserve. This small passage right here of five verses ends the idea that we got to believe in us the way God believes in us. Ends it. 
There's many more we go through. But what you'll notice about every scripture that is quote unquote fortune cookied, it elevates man. It elevates man. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They're good, they're prosperous, I'm coming up. I can do all things. Everything will work out to my good. All these scriptures that are fortune cookied elevate us. And if you spend any time in scripture, you'll find that every time a man is elevated or a woman is elevated, it is never good. It always falls apart. Jesus said, if I, when I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. The scripture that we're basing everything on in our life is the elevation of him, not us. Saying God believes in us elevates humanity to only a place God, God is designed to be. Next on your notes, God isn't in the business of believing in human beings. He's in the business of saving them. He's not in the business of believing in human beings. He's in the business of saving them. God doesn't have faith in us. We have faith in him. Well, Matt, does that mean I can do nothing? No. Next on your notes, God entrusts humans with many things to steward. Let's look at just a couple of them. God entrusts humans with many things to steward. The gospel. This part blows my mind quite a bit, actually. I'm thinking there had to be a better plan than us to carry the gospel to everybody else. I mean, like, I know my flaws. I know what goes on inside my head and in my heart, the things I got to wrestle with and put to death on a daily basis. I know how that goes, yet I'm the one that's got to carry the message of the gospel to people who don't know you. I don't know about this one. I think that if it was me, I would have been like, eh, maybe the plan B. Let's go with the plan B. What is the other one? But you and I, as believers in Christ, have been entrusted with the gospel, the message of salvation for eternity and being reconciled with God. He has given that to us and given us direction. What is that direction? Go into all the world and make disciples. Take the message of the gospel. Why? Because when there is no one presenting the gospel, the people run wild and cast off restraint. That has been entrusted to us. Physical and spiritual gifts. You've got a talent, you've got a skill, you've been hardwired to be good at something, to have a, a tendency to, 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 to have an ability to, to work on with your hands or, or figure out computations in your mind without needing a calculator. If you can do that, I'd hate you. No, I'm kidding. I, I can't do that at all. My brain hurts thinking about But if you have physical gifts that God has hardwired and deposited in every single person as an investment in your life, knowing that you could use them away from him. 
spiritual gifts. Every single person who is a believer in Christ, the scripture tells us, is given a measure of a spiritual gift in some way, shape, or form to use to serve God and to serve other people. Finances, your money is not your own. Well, I worked for it. God gave you the ability to do the job. He opened the door for you to have the job that pays you the money or the business that earns you the money. That money is given to you to steward. Yes, to provide for your family. Yes, to provide for your, your kids, to, to provide for those around you, your extended family, but also to be a blessing to other people. It has been given to us to steward. The next one, our bodies. We've been given a body to take care of so that we can continue living in a way to set an example for those around us. Children. Children are not our possession. They are ours to take care of, to care for, to raise, to teach, to train. But we are stewards of those children. If you're a parent in this room, you're a steward of them. God's given you influence to steward. Matt, I don't have any influence. Somebody somewhere listens to you about something. It could be something as huge as your fantasy football team, but somebody somewhere listens to you about something. And that influence gives you an ability to present the gospel to them. We are stewarding our influence. Time. We've got time. What do we do with the time that we've been given? We are supposed to steward our time. Well, I kind of got this plan and an idea of things that I would really like to do. Okay, submit your plans to the Lord and let him establish if the path is correct or not. What does this have to do with, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? When we fortune cookie the statement, we ignore what we've been given to steward because we would like our focus to be on something that would explode. Oh, my job, my influence, my, my fame, my views, my likes, whatever it is to explode so I get more influence, more money, so I can feel like I've established myself and people can go, yeah, bro, you made it. If the scripture was written in the other direction, I could almost understand the, 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 the misunderstanding of it. I could almost accept it a little bit more. God has strengthened me to do all things. But it wasn't written that way. God has not strengthened you to do all things. God has strengthened you to fulfill what he has directed you to accomplish. How do I know that? Philippians chapter 4 and instead of just verse 13, let's start at verse 9. This is Paul talking to the church in Philippi who has sent him a care package when he was in prison. <clears throat> he says, and now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. 
I know you have always been concerned about me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Does that sound like a champion slogan for us to pick whatever big thing that we want to do that scares us, slap the God told me to do this card on it, and then run out there and do it because I can accomplish it because I'm a, I, I'm a Christian? If that were the case, every Christian business person who started a business it would have exploded. And I can tell you about many business failures from believers. One of the gentlemen I'm privileged to meet throughout my life who's probably one of the wealthiest people I know, bankrupt twice, serving God, but didn't work. That right there blows a hole in the narrative of I can just pick what I want to do. I can just, I can do it all. I can just go do the thing and God's going to bless it. Right, Matt? And the answer is no. Paul is telling the church in Philippi that he has no needs because he's content. Stop right there for a second. How many times in the last week, I'll even give it a month, but I think it will only be a week. Have you heard people say in our culture, Go for more. How many of you want more? You see what your neighbor has and I want more. Go after more. Do more. But here, Paul is saying, it's not about more. It's about that I have learned if I'm going to follow God where he sends me and he has me in a wonderful hotel with a really cushy bed air conditioning and all the food I can eat more than any golden corral buffet can ever stuff in my mouth. Or he's outside with a rock for a pillow under the elements, starving no matter what. He's content. He's content because he's following the direction that God has pointed him in. How can you make it not knowing if you're going to be hungry or fed, if you're going to be, have a roof over your head or not, if you're going to have to, you know, try to get the, the, the fleas and mosquitoes off of you at night, or you're going to be comfortable in a perfectly air conditioned room. How in the world can you say it doesn't matter which one of those environments you're in because I can accomplish any of those things. I can endure any of that. I can make it through any scenario in my life if I have followed the direction where God has given me. And it's not because I took the risk. I did the thing. It's because he strengthened me to endure it. He strengthened me through his spirit to have peace in the middle of the nonsense, to not worry where the next meal is coming from, but to say, I'm content here. 
Matt, are you telling me that I can't try to build my business or go after the promotion or do the thing or increase my education so I can go higher up? No, 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 no. The question here is not about you trying to make an advancement in a career or anything. The question is, are you obedient to where God's sending you? Because this passage is relating to that. Not about human strength or God believing in you. What it is about is God strengthening you to accomplish what he has set in front of you. And if that makes you a multimillionaire, you owe me dinner. I'm just kidding. <laughs> if that makes you a multimillionaire, great. But you have been entrusted to steward what's been given you and the way that God would orchestrate. Why? Because if he's given me the direction, if he's opened the door, if he's pointed the way, and it doesn't matter what obstacles we face, we can make it through it because he has strengthened us to do so. When we unfortune cookie the scripture, it takes the spotlight off of me, us, what I want, what I want to do, and puts it where it should be, and that is on him. And my submission to him, my need for him, the reality that he is the one who sustains. And he is the prize. It's one of the main reasons we're doing this is to get the focus off of us, to put it on him. Whatever you would want me to do, I would gladly do. Matt, you don't want people to have influence? No. I want you to have influence. But I want you to steward it in the way God has orchestrated it to be stewarded. Will we go to heaven with this big influence? Will 10,000 people show up at our funeral and talk about how we did great things for them? And then us get to heaven and God say, man, you helped them build a temporary life but not an eternal one. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Where there is no instruction, people cast off restraint. And if God pointed me in the direction, he pointed you in the direction, doesn't matter what hardship you face, you'll make it through it because he is the one who has strengthened you to endure.